Jeff is still spazzing out, rolling on the floor, back and forth, and getting into weird contorted positions with his body like from the movie The Exorcist. When I got back into town, I went to the courthouse and began the process of getting a stalking order against him. It was to great discomfort that we both asked the question, who had really been living in our house this last week? Headphones recommended. Listener discretion advised. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. From Disturbed Media, I'm your host, Chad, and this is Disturbed. A big thanks to BetterHelp for supporting this episode of Disturbed. You can visit with an online counselor right from your home. Get 10% off your first month over at betterhelp.com slash truehorror and start living a better life today. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash true, H-O-R-R-O-R. Welcome back in, everyone. As we approach spring and temperatures start to rise, we roll on with those true scary stories. Our first experience is our title story, brought to us by an anonymous Reddit user. What happens when a psychotic nightmare becomes reality? Performing this experience is Matt Bradford. Not sure if this is considered a creepy encounter, but it's one of the most creepiest, fucked up, scariest moments of my life. This story starts out with my four friends who are, for privacy purposes, let's call them A, F, R, and J. A booked an Airbnb for his birthday, and we were just planning to relax and drop some acid. Me, A, and R have done acid in the past, and it was a great experience. For background purposes, I've experimented heavily with acid for the past three years, dropping upwards of almost five tabs at once so I know what to expect when doing acid. However, this trip caught me completely off guard. F and J have always been curious about acid and wanted to drop it with us for their first time. We're all close friends, so we thought it'd be a nice experience to try. So we get to our Airbnb, which is a cozy two-story wooden cabin. We all decided to take one tab each. F and J were hesitant on taking one full tab, but eventually agreed to it since we were all going to take one full tab. This is where I should have realized that maybe we should have taken a half or even a quarter since I didn't know the dosage of each tab. However, I've always got acid from this dealer and knew he was a reliable source as my previous trips were always safe regarding the doses and legitimacy of the LSD. Now, we all take the tab at 3pm and for the first 45 minutes it was going well. We were watching the garden of words and talking about life and our relationships and such. But about another 45 minutes pass, and this is where the red flags start popping up. We all decide to go downstairs and just chill while I make food. F, A, and R are starting to lose themselves. Their sentences were becoming incoherent, and they were unable to understand what me and Jay are saying. Even though it was Jay's first time taking acid, he held himself together quite well and was taking care of F, A, and R. 
A then stubs his toe on a chair and starts bleeding. This is when the nightmare starts. A is in pain, then starts to say, security check, about every 20 seconds. I believe the injury towards A's toe started making him paranoid about the whole cabin, as he rented it in his name and wanted to make sure it's safe and such. So, for about 30 to 40 minutes, he's repeating the phrase, security check. During this time frame, F and R are tripping out hard. They're starting to lose themselves completely. F is talking incoherent gibberish with A while A is in pain and repeating security check. R is sitting down by himself, fucking out of his mind. He couldn't understand a word I said or what was going on. So me and Jay help the three of them upstairs to relax and lay down a bit. I bring up the food I made while A is still saying security check over and over. This is where R and F fall asleep. I have no clue how someone falls asleep on acid. We had some nice lo-fi beats playing to lighten the mood, however, I don't think this helped. Me and Jay are still in our right mind and just chilling out until F wakes up and starts acting strange. He tried doing a judo move on Jay, and Jay thought this was normal behavior because we're into combat sports and spar a lot. This was the first big red flag. F then goes to me to try to judo flip me, but I counter it and we end up in the bed. I asked him if he's good and then he quickly replied, yeah, I'm good, but awkwardly fast. I mean, every time he talked, it was like he was rapping like Eminem. He was speaking like this since we were downstairs. This is when shit gets fucking weird. F goes to R who is sleeping and proceeds to gouge his fucking face out while asking if R is okay. F keeps his fingernails really long for some reason, so if he got to R's eyes, it would have been bad. We moved R away from F and try to get him to relax a bit because right now me and Jay are starting to realize that F is not okay. F then starts spazzing the fuck out. He falls onto the floor and slams his leg onto R's head who is sleeping on the floor. F is still spazzing out, rolling on the floor, back and forth, and getting into weird contorted positions with his body like from the movie The Exorcist. He was also chanting and mumbling random shit while spazzing out on the floor like a psychotic crackhead. And at this point, A is coming back to his senses and is like, what the fuck is he doing? Now, this is when the shit really hits the fan. Upon seeing this, I go to the speaker to turn down the music. This is when F stands up and walks towards me asking what I'm doing. I say, just turning down the music, bro, as I'm still a little freaked out by him. He pushes me violently aside and proceeds to grab the speaker and smash it on the ground. He then grabs the cord that was attached to the speaker and pulls on it while screaming, What does it all mean? This scares the living fuck out of me, A and J, all while R is still asleep through all of this. At this point, we're all freaked out by what F does. F proceeds to walk to the staircase, but along the way he palm strikes R who is starting to sit up. This causes R to fall back to the ground and go to sleep again. Not sure if he got knocked out. F also strikes me in the jaw right after hitting R, causing my jaw to slightly dislocate. Didn't find out until after the trip. While this is happening, A tells him to chill out. I shit you not, F responds in the most demonic fucking voice. Chill out. No, you chill out. Like, he sounded like a legit satanic demon saying that. After F hit my jaw, my first instinct is to clinch and, and take him to the ground. I'd trained for Brazilian jiu-jitsu for almost a year by then, so my instincts just kicked in. We hit the ground and I pin him with the help of Jay. Remember, this is Jay's first time taking acid, so he's freaking the fuck out by what was happening to F. F is violent as fuck and is strong as fuck on the ground. He's struggling and chanting random shit to himself like he's possessed or something. He breaks free a couple of times and attacks everyone. 
He smashed A's face in with a closed fist repeatedly until I got him off. He also was kicking anyone in front of him as we pin him, all while trying to bite us. I mean, he would scratch, hit, bite, or do anything he could to harm us. And every time we'd pin him, he arched his back like that one scene from The Exorcist where the girl is walking down the stairs like a spider. I mean, thank God I knew Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because F looked like he was set on killing all of us. This was a nightmare. He would glare at me and Jay as we were pinning him down. By far, this was so fucking creepy as I thought he was a demon. F is screaming gibberish and making weird noises while trying to contort his body like the girl from The Exorcist. At times, he would arch his back and stick out his tongue while trying to throw up while making the most demonic noises I've ever heard. What he was doing was straight from a horror movie, and it creeped me the fuck out. At 8pm, this is when R wakes up. And when R wakes up, he couldn't believe what was happening. He thought he had died during the acid trip and was now in hell. Reason being is that R saw that I was bleeding and that my face was swollen while being pinned down with F and J, all while A is having a mental breakdown witnessing this. R says to himself, F would never hurt us like that. This isn't real. It's just a dream. He then proceeds to scream, Jesus Christ, at the top of his lungs repeatedly. And the screaming triggers F to fight us even harder. I mean, R screams Jesus Christ and repeats Bible verses for at least three hours while F was trying to fight us. During those three hours, me and Jay are pinning down F who is tripping harder and harder as R just keeps screaming Jesus Christ repeatedly. F then screams and makes demonic throw-up noises while trying to get loose as a response to R's religious babble. I mean, imagine this. One guy screaming Jesus Christ repeatedly and saying Bible verses at the top of his lungs, while another guy is actively trying to harm you as you pin him down, all while you're tripping on acid still. It was a fucking nightmare, to say the least. If the screaming, chanting, and constant fear of being maimed was all that me, A, and J could think of at the time. Well, A recollects himself and begins watching R and calming him down while trying to get him to be quiet as neighbors around our Airbnb are still awake. 11pm hits and R snaps out of it. A few minutes later, F then snaps out of it. I didn't know for sure if he was back to normal as he asked us for water and stopped fighting us. Me and J cautiously let him up. However, F has his back turned toward me. In case he went apeshit crazy again, I could quickly get his back and choke him out so we could restrain him. However, he's normal again. Me, A, and J experienced the chaos and destruction done by F and R, who weren't even aware of what they were doing during their psychotic trip. This trip made me realize acid is not for everyone, and that we should have taken some precautions beforehand. Psychedelics can either be a heavenly experience or a hellish nightmare that won't end. FNR didn't realize how serious the situation was until we told them afterwards, and to be honest, I'm not sure if they realized the severity of what me, J, and A experienced that night. I thought I knew what I was getting into, but holy shit, I will think twice the next time I try LSD with anyone. We all remain friends to this day but me, A, and J will remember the nightmare hell of a trip that we experienced. This trip will forever be ingrained in my mind as the worst LSD trip I've ever experienced in my life. Special thanks to all of our newest Patreon members. Ken Fairman, Sylvan Diebel, Becky Mullen, Anthony Rabino, Maddie, Kenneth Moore, Jordan Atkinson, Athena, and Lisa. Support the show and get your very own shout out 
ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and more for as little as $3 a month by joining our Patreon at disturbedpodcast.com support. Next up, Reddit user Mother of Hendrix had to deal with a weed dealer turned stalker. Performing this experience is Addison Peacock. When I was 18, I was living in a small town. I was friends with the ratty skaters around, and they helped connect me with this dude who sold weed. He was 29 at the time and gave me pretty good deals and lived nearby. I wasn't driving at the time, so this was convenient for me. His name was Max. Max had always struck me as a weird dude, but I honestly quite liked his weirdness, not in a romantic way or anything, but I like weird people. We had normal weed-buying interactions that never lasted more than 10 minutes. Buy some weed, maybe smoke a bowl, that's it. He'd often tell me he could drop it off at my house, but I never let him because, as I said before, he was weird. I wasn't afraid of him, but I was definitely aware that he and his offers to deliver were weird. One day in May 2018, I was invited to a bonfire by the same ratty skaters that introduced me to this guy. I had no idea he'd be there, nor was it important to me at all. I brought the guy I was dating at the time. I said hey to everyone, including Max. We stayed for a couple hours, and some of them played some music on their guitars. Nearing the time I was leaving the bonfire, around 11 p.m., Max was getting upset about something and threw his guitar in the bonfire. I didn't know what he was angry or upset about and paid no mind to it. This happened as I was leaving with the guy I was dating. I went to bed and woke up to paragraphs on paragraphs of crazy texts from Max, ranging from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., like a constant stream of texts, stating things such as, you know how much I loved you, you're a cruel cunt. He would go back and forth between saying, I would give you the world if you'd let me, and you really do deserve him though. He said really scary things like, you're a predator and should be snubbed out, just wait, winky face, and you're stuck, I will either love you or hate you to the fullest extent my powers behold. Right now I pay the worst death on you and that fuckboy bitch. To top it all off, he said losing you is like losing a mother to me and told me to tell him I never loved him and that I wouldn't hear from him again if I did. So that's what I did, I said, I never loved you, do not message me again, and left it at that. I didn't get a response, nor did I care to get one. Max had never expressed any romantic interest, asked me out, or anything. This was all out of nowhere, and he was 11 years older than me, I was barely 18. That night he cut his long hair off and posted photos naked on Facebook, curled up in fetal position talking about being a statue of shame. It's as if he had a breakdown but I had no intention of causing that and didn't think I would even offend anyone by bringing the guy I was seeing. Everyone else seemed to like the guy I brought. About a week later, Max texted me pretty late at night and he asked if I had seen the flowers he spread along my sidewalk, saying that he stole every flower in the vicinity of my neighborhood that night. I asked how he knew where I lived and said I hadn't seen the flowers, so he must have had the wrong house. I also told him he shouldn't do that as I never felt anything for him and so on. 
He told me that he had heard I lived on the same block as another one of the skater guys we were both friends with. And he wasn't wrong. The skater guy I lived by was on the other side of the block, and I never walked that way, so I never saw the flowers. I blocked his number and didn't hear from him again for weeks. Weeks later, I woke up after a rough night, and there were loads of flowers on the sidewalk right outside my house, along with a little bouquet at the top of my walkway. I was pissed. I wasn't scared yet, and stupidly, I unblocked his number and texted him asking why the fuck there were flowers outside my house. This confirmed that this indeed was where I lived. I still to this day feel so stupid for texting him and making it known that after weeks he had found my house. He responded saying, Hmm, sounds nice, twas me. I bitched him out basically and blocked his number again. About a week later I was out of town and my roommate texted me a photo of a heart with a peace sign inside of it and my name written under it, drawn in chalk outside our house. When I got back into town, I went to the courthouse and began the process of getting a stalking order against him. When I left the courthouse, I went to Max's work and told him he needed to stop this behavior and that he was stalking me. He looked me in the eyes with no facial expression and said, if you don't leave, I am calling the cops. I got angry and loudly said, call the cops. I was just talking to them about you and left his work in a rage. Soon after this, I began driving again. I once drove by him, and he noticed it was me. The next day, I woke up with my car covered in flowers. I presented my case to the judge, and she put the stalking order in place. He was served with it by police officers, and I thought that was that and he wouldn't be bothering me again. I was wrong. After the stalking order was served, he made several other chalk messages on my sidewalk, left random gifts for me like chalk and beheaded my little pony heads on beer bottles. I always brought these things to the police station, but they said I needed to catch him doing it, take a photo or get a security camera. So I got a security camera and really hoped I would catch him. It turned out my security camera was stupid and I couldn't just watch the videos it took, but had to skip through second by second by hand. It was an impossible task. I was terrified of leaving my house at night at this point. I never had my curtains open anymore and I was so frustrated that my livelihood was being taken away from me. Ultimately, I unblocked his number in hopes that he would text me directly violating the stalking order and after a few days, it worked. He sent me a weird text saying something like, forgive me, we are charming, this is harming, let us try again. By now it's September 2018 and he finally goes to jail. He's facing up to a year in jail and has to stay there until our court date. I finally start calming down. I'm able to go outside at night, even if just to get in my car. I let myself have my curtains open sometimes. I'm starting to feel alive again. Right when I start feeling secure in my small town life again, someone posted bail and he was released after only three months in jail and I was back to living in fear. We still had court dates coming up, and I was optimistic that he would serve more time for ruining my life for so long. His lawyer kept pushing the court date back to gather evidence, and after about six months of pushing it back, the state decided he wouldn't do anything more and closed the case, basically. I had moved out of town three plus hours away at this point, so he didn't actually have an option to continue this behavior. Living in this new place, I feel safe. I can walk at night and don't have to have my curtains closed all the time. It's been over a year since they decided to close the case. 
About a month ago, he began responding to my friend's Instagram stories. Friends that live here in this new town, telling them how fond he is of me, etc. I've always had him blocked, but my Instagram isn't private, so he must have found them that way. I've since changed my account to private, and he hasn't messaged any more friends of mine. I refuse to be fearful now the way I was then. He will never find where I live, or where I work now. However, my life is forever changed after this experience. I will always be more aware of people and their weird energy. I will always close my curtains early in the evening and make sure all the windows and doors are locked. I will always live a little bit in fear. Maybe not of him, but of it happening again. He ruined my life for a year, and I truly wish he had gotten that time in jail. He deserves it. So, Max, let's never meet again. These days, so many factors can lead to feeling stressed, tired, overwhelmed, and depressed. So it's more important than ever to evaluate your mental health, and that's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your very own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, which makes it a lot more convenient than sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. Seriously, your mental health is just as important as your physical health, so don't cheat yourself. Now, here's what I love. BetterHelp is actually more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and you can even get financial aid. The tools are all right there for a better you. The thing is, what's locally available to you might be limited, and BetterHelp offers a broad range of expertise. You can rest assured that anything you share is confidential, giving you peace of mind. You'll have access to professional counselors who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, self-esteem, and so much more. So start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash truehorror. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash truehorror for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule history so interesting, it's criminal. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Now back to the show. 
And finally, we hear from Reddit user TinderGuy11. It was quite the surprise when he learned who his boss really was. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. So back in 2007, I found myself working as a bartender at a now-closed pub in my hometown. Not a job I particularly liked, but it paid the bills. At this time, they had hired a new kitchen manager that we all simply knew as Kearney. Kearney was a pleasant enough man, mostly keeping to himself, but always stayed late to help the barman do our closing duties, so we all liked him for that. New in town, Kearney had yet to find a place of permanent residence, and I had recently lost my tenant, so someone suggested he ask me. He was considerably older than the tenants I usually took in, but having had a streak of bad luck with tenants my own age, I thought an older man with a nice steady job may be a shift in the right direction, so I agreed. Kearney wasted no time and followed me home that very same night. Only he wasn't alone. Enter Lawrence, the boyfriend of Kearney. Honestly, I hadn't even realized he was gay up to that point, but was water off my back regardless. Looking back now, what really should have bothered me though was Lawrence's appearance. He looked like he had been sleeping on the street, rather appropriately as I would later find out. So Kearney moved in. Lawrence was there a lot too. And it was easy to know when due to his mobile ringtone sounding like the quacking of a duckling. Kearney had some habits that were rather noteworthy to the story. In particular, one, he basically never closed his bedroom door no matter what he was doing in there. It was always open. And two, although he was a very heavy smoker, he never once smoked inside the house. So Kearney had been living there for about two weeks when I had come down with an awful case of pink eye. This being highly contagious, I was given leave of absence for my bartending job and therefore decided to go wait it out at my sister's for a few days. Apparently, I didn't mind giving it to her. Sorry, sis. So the day my sister was scheduled to come pick me up, no, I couldn't drive yet. I took a casual stroll into the bar that myself and Ben, my good friend from high school and at that time co-worker, had been building in my house and something caught my eye. All our liquor bottles were completely empty. Now, those who had been frequenting my house at that time would know that we weren't just talking about one or two bottles of brandy here, but bottles of whiskey, gin, vodka, schnapps, liqueurs. Basically, it was a fully stocked bar that could host a pretty big party without requiring much in the way of additions. So I called Kearney in, asking him what he knew about this, receiving feedback that Lawrence and he had been on a slight drinking binge. Those were the actual words he used that had left me both furious about the thousands worth of stock they had drunk out, but also slightly impressed that he was actually still alive. Regardless, I said that I will be dealing with this upon my return. So I'm with my sister for a few days, and on Friday, I got a call from my local police department asking me if I knew a Conrad Schultz. Ironically enough, I didn't. They finally add that I will probably know him as Kearney, and that I should probably come down to the station as they had just arrested his boyfriend trying to sell my camera equipment. So my sister rushes me back to home where all my camera equipment was on display at the police station. It's on this visit that I'm informed that Lawrence was actually a Navy SEAL who got dishonorably discharged before turning to a life of crime and now had a rap sheet the length of the Bible. The kicker was that both he and Kearney were actually homeless men who had met at the Salvation Army. So Lawrence is in jail and my sister drops me off at home, more or less the same time that Kearney gets home as well. Based on Kearney's account of what had happened, He had turned Lawrence in himself, as he couldn't allow Lawrence to do to me what he was trying to do. Although I had appreciated his sacrifice, I still told Kearney that he would have to go, having been the overall cause of all this. However, 
not wanting to leave the homeless man, well, homeless, I gave him until the end of the month to make other arrangements. So Monday comes and having just completed staff meeting, I walk home to encounter a very much free Lawrence sitting on the sidewalk across my house watching it. I confront Lawrence as to why he's there and he tries to apologize before begging for money. Rather out of character, really. I dismissed him without giving him a cent. Now I go back to the previous night, see I had mentioned the staff meeting for a reason, as it was at that meeting where we had gotten a rather sizable list of liquor bottles that had gone missing from the storeroom, leaving us all suspecting each other. I, however, would not have to wait long to figure out who the real culprit was, as a few days later I opened the garbage bin in my kitchen to see the missing bottles, all empty and staring back at me. I decided to sit on this information for the time being, although I did photograph it just for in case I needed his evidence later. I had also called over Ben to inform him of the developments. As this was quickly becoming a detective game, we decided to enter Kearney's room to search for further evidence. Nothing of vast significance in there, with one exception. Two single photographs of Lawrence before he had turned into the homeless version of Lex Luthor or Charles Xavier. Actually, there were several of Lawrence's things still there, but as Lawrence had spent a lot of time there before the incident, I accepted that as normal. Now, I should also add that I had mentioned Lawrence's release to Kearney, and I told him that if I even suspected that they were still seeing each other, I would throw him out of the house myself. Only a few days would pass before this came into play. On this particular night, I had been bartending again, and Kearney had constantly been stopping by the bar to help himself to draw glasses half full of wine and half full of coke which he would go drink outside the restaurant. We confronted him about this, but as he correctly pointed out, he was still a manager and we had no right to tell him what he could or could not do. On his fourth trip, however, I had grown suspicious and decided to follow him outside, where I encountered Lawrence sitting outside sharing the half coke, half wine concoctions with Kearney. This pissed me off. So the next day I returned to the restaurant with my photographic evidence that I handed over to the general manager, who was also a kind friend of mine. Although I hadn't physically seen it, I had heard the confrontation through the office door when he fired Kearney. Kearney left, obviously upset, and apparently had no idea that I had been the one who had turned him in. So we had closed early that night, and I was walking home going past the high school. I saw Kearney coming from the opposite direction. He walked past me, literally only saying two words, I'm scared, before disappearing into the darkness. That would be the last time that I would ever physically lay my eyes on Conrad Schultz. So we reached the final week before Kearney's eviction was to take place. Ben had come to stay with me for that duration as we both wanted to monitor the situation and make sure that nothing else happens. It was in this week that Kearney's behavior suddenly changed. He was constantly smoking in his room and his door was closed 24-7. In fact, neither Ben nor I had caught so much as a peek of him that entire last week, which we hadn't thought much of at that time. So the day of Kearney's eviction comes around, Ben had gone home for a few hours, and I finally hear Kearney's bedroom door open. Someone walks out of the room, opens the front door, and leaves. I follow him outside, but somehow he had already completely disappeared. What was left, though, was his house keys, indicating that he obviously wasn't planning to come back. I took a look at the keys, noticing something strange. Although the correct keys were all on the keychain, there were also several that weren't mine. Why would he leave me the wrong keys? I remember myself thinking as I walked into his room. His room was a shock. Not because of the state it was in, the two had broken his bed in an act of wild monkey sex, but I had known about that already, as I said he never closed his damn door. But more that he had literally left almost all of his belongings behind with one exception. You guessed it, the two photos of Lawrence. Upon further investigation, 
I suddenly realized that all traces of Lawrence ever being there had completely vanished, with all of Kearney's stuff left behind. There was one thing of Lawrence left behind, though, his duckling ringtone, which it turned out hadn't been so much a ringtone as an actual duckling, which now strove around casually in the vacant bedroom. We named him Neville. So Ben returns and gets updated about the developments, both of us thinking the way he left was rather weird, of course. The whole thing had been weird. It was only when I asked the infamous question that all became a conspiracy theory. Did you ever actually see Kearney in this last week? It was to our shock that we realized that neither of us had. Suddenly putting puzzle pieces together, the changing habits, Neville the duck, the wrong keys, only Lawrence's stuff being gone. It was to great discomfort that we both asked the question, who had really been living in our house this last week? During the next few days, Ben and I went on a mission searching the town, crawling into drain pipes, trying to find any trace of Kearney's whereabouts, but they all added up to nothing. Conrad Schultz had simply vanished off the face of the earth. That wasn't the case with Lawrence, though. No, he was still around, having made some new homeless friends. We encountered him several times begging on the streets. I asked him every time, where's Kearney, Lawrence? But he just acted like he had never heard of him. The last time I would see Lawrence was across from work, attempting to break into a car. I had called the police on him and they arrived rather quickly, arresting him on the spot. While he was being led away by the police, I shouted after him one last time, Where is Kearney, Lawrence? But he just ignored me and let the cops drag him away. The next day I filed the police report, reporting Kearney as a missing person, and suggesting that Lawrence may know something about it, but nothing ever came of it. So, Lawrence, I don't know if you did something to Kearney or not, but if you did, let's not meet again. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. Please support our sponsors. By doing so, you allow us to offer this show for free. Musical score by White Bat Audio, Co.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.